How you doing, everybody? Welcome back to episode 17 of Baked and Awake. This is Steve, your host as always, and uh, on my own again this week. Uh, George and Palu will be rejoining us soon, I'm sure. Uh, Palu started a new job recently and has been settling into that uh, routine, but I know both guys are listening and looking forward to returning, joining us back here at the table. Um, wanted to uh, say hi to both of them, George and Paulu, and also to uh, do a general thank you to everyone who has continued to review the show, say hello, message me um, with show topics and just general feedback. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to uh, remind you, uh, for those of you who maybe missed last episode uh, or who didn't get around to it, uh, please check out the most recent episode of Supernormal Podcast by my friend Sam Sedlak. Episode 13 was on mixed race, and uh, I was one of two guests Sam had on there. I shared my experience as a mixed race adoptee and now father of two boys of my own, so... Uh, please check it out, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy Sam's podcast quite a bit. Uh, also, I am stoked to say that um, a promo, a little promo spot that I recorded for, for our show uh, was actually uh, used by my friend Christophs at the Eastern Border, and he featured our promo at the top of his most recent episode, Man of Steel 8, Promotions. Uh, so, again, that's the Eastern Border. Amazing podcast on the history of the USSR and the Russian nation states that um, can, you know, uh, constituted that. Uh, and, you know, both before, during, and up into the modern era today, how things are today uh, over there. Wonderful show. I enjoy it a lot. Love it if you go and check out our little promo and Kristaps' show. Uh, one other little unpaid plug sort of thing. Uh, I stopped by and visited a great new shop in the South End today. If you live in the South End, South Seattle to Tacoma Corridor, anywhere around there, um, Fife, Lacey, etc., uh, take a quick trip out and visit the folks at Bloom Cannabis Shop. Um, Bloom is uh, in the same parking lot as a locally famous drive-thru uh, that I've been to a number of times over the years that's really tasty there. It's Frugal's. Um, so anybody around here might know Frugal's uh, drive-thru, great burger joint, shakes, cool fun stuff there. Uh, so you know what to do after you stock up on your safety supplies. Uh, make sure you say hi to Kiki, Lee, and I think it's AC who helped me when I was in. Uh, let them know that Baked and Awake sent you for absolutely no discount on your first purchase. Uh, give them a high five anyway. They deserve your support. All right. Uh, moving into sort of our show topics for today. I got some fun stuff that I've been reading on. Uh, and as I am want to do, uh, by the way, we're... We're smoking this morning. We're puffing on a little bit of our own moonshine, our own homegrown this morning. So uh, no store-bought uh, today. It's just our own lake of fire. Um, and just hanging out with a little bowl here with you guys. So definitely uh, advise you to get ready, get safe, get yourselves uh, 
squared away because uh, you're getting no break right now. So you're going to have to work while we're talking. Uh, we're starting off with a story about Portland, Oregon, as promised, Portland friends. Uh, you've got a wonderful uh, state representative down there who has started a super PAC to help combat anti-cannabis legislators and, um, you know, boost and promote opposition candidates to those same in an effort to continue to improve um, the scene in Oregon and, by extension, the nation. Um, uh, So what we've got here is an article that I found from the Portland Mercury. So, you know... um, Some of you Oregoners and Portlanders might already have uh, perused this one. Oregon produces some of the finest cannabis in North America, and as evidenced by an article yesterday in Salem's Statesman Journal, we also produce the finest elected representatives to stand up for our cannabis industry. The Journal's Jonathan Bach reported on Rep. Earl Blumenauer's announcement that he has formed the Cannabis Fund, a political action committee with the goal of unseating anti-cannabis lawmakers. As of June, the last point at which financials were disclosed, the fund had raised $2,000. Okay, you know, humble beginnings. And in October, Blumenauer revealed that his first target will be Representative Pete Sessions from the state of Texas. So clearly uh, targeting, you know, cross-state national legalization, um, which is, of course, what we're all... uh, more or less in support of around here, I think. Uh, There is no love lost between these two representatives on the matter of jazz tobacco. Sessions has gotten all up in the business of Blumenauer at least twice, first by helping block a vote on a Blumenauer amendment that would have helped veterans access medical cannabis through the Veterans Affairs Program. In parentheses, I guess because Sessions would rather see veterans in pain or strung out on opiates, question mark, an odd choice, but you do you, Petey. So a little uh, commentary from our writer there. Then Sessions, who who chairs the House Rules Committee, continued to be a dick by blocking the Rohrbacher-Blumenauer Amendment, which would have prevented the Justice Department from using money to go after medical marijuana users in states with medical marijuana programs. Parentheses again. Sessions seems to think the best thing for someone who's sick or dying is to sit in a jail cell. I'd be interested to hear if a majority of licensed medical professionals agree with that treatment plan. Blumenauer made it clear he isn't up for any of these shenanigans and put Sessions and his ilk on notice telling the Statesman Journal, quote, We're going to be putting up some billboards in Pete Sessions' district. It's going to feature a veteran and ask the question why Pete Sessions doesn't want him to have access to his medicine. We're going to make the point that there are consequences. This is not a free vote. The quote continues, The American people overwhelmingly support cannabis reform, and we have more support than ever in Congress. I launched the Cannabis Fund to keep up this momentum. I want to see even more pro-cannabis candidates elected to Congress and continue the wave of reforms happening at the state level. And we want to make clear that there are consequences for those elected officials opposing what a majority of the public supports, he says. Sessions, seemingly fond of absurd hyperbole, told the Statesman Journal in a statement, quote, The merchants of addiction are attempting to influence our work, and it is my hope that we will see this problem as a national crisis. 
The flaccid fear mongers at Smart Approaches to Marijuana Action, mentioned in my column this week, this is again the article, the important Lynn Mercury article, have entered the fray, paying for a digital billboard along a highway near Sessions Dallas, Texas office. Per the Statesman Journal, the billboard shows Amanda, a Texas mother cradling a baby, who says, Thanks, Congressman Sessions, for protecting my family against marijuana legalization. To read more about the conflict and Blumenauer's funds to combat anti-cannabis lawmakers over at the Statesman Journal. So uh, I, I like that story a lot, and I like to start off on a positive note on the baked news and then going to follow it back up with one that I found that's a little bit less positive, although I think we've got some room for interpretation here in this report. The next story here is Doctors claim first documented fatal marijuana overdose. Now, okay, excuse me. I got this from newser.com. I don't really know who these guys are. So, uh, Michael Hawthorne, though, Hartthorne, uh, Newser staff wrote this on uh, November 16th and updated it on November 17th. So, let's see what this story is all about. Newser. In parentheses, right off the top, Newser has a comment, uh, a proviso. Ooh, and I'm not going to read it to you because I want to bury the lead. In news that could change what we thought we knew about marijuana, as well as alter the progress of marijuana legalization, two doctors in Colorado say they've documented the first ever fatal marijuana overdose. The DEA says no deaths from marijuana overdoses have ever been reported. And the National Institutes of Health say there is, quote, insufficient evidence for fatal THC overdoses. But in a case study published in CPC Emergency Medicine last March, they include the link there. Dr. Thomas Knapp and Dr. Christopher Hoyt of the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center concluded the 2015 death of an 11-month-old child was caused by marijuana. The doctors spoke publicly about the case for the first time this week in an interview with KUSA. The, the child died of myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle that can be caused by bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites. But Hoyt and Knapp say they didn't find any of that. The only thing that we found was marijuana high concentrations of marijuana in his blood, and that's the only thing we found, end quote, Hoyt says. It's unclear when or how the child ingested marijuana, though it is, quote, highly unlikely it entered his system through passive means like secondhand smoke, the Denver Channel reports. I would agree with that. While Hoyt and Knapp are confident that they've documented the first death by marijuana overdose, other doctors are skeptical. The case study provides no evidence that marijuana can cause myocarditis and admits it's possible it was caused by something doctors couldn't test for. One emergency medicine specialist says the case study's conclusion is, quote, too much. I would tend to agree with that. Bit of a sensational-sounding story here in the lead. I'm going to go back up to the top and read you now the in parentheses update um, 
about this article, and then we'll go to it. The doctors involved in this study have since denied calling this case a definitive marijuana overdose. Update here, and then the original report, which I just read to you, followed. Now let's take a quick peek at the update. Okay, here we are. Here's the update. The Colorado doctors behind those reports of the first documented fatal marijuana overdose would like everyone to please chill out. Well, sure, guys, you're the ones who told us about it, right? Dr. Thomas Knapp now tells the Washington Post they are, quote, are absolutely not saying that marijuana killed, end quote, an 11-month-old child two years ago. Knapp says he's disappointed news reports have mischaracterized the conclusion reached in a case study authored by himself and Dr. Christopher Hoyt. He says they simply recorded a possible link between cannabis and myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart that killed the child. The case study states, quote, this is the first reported pediatric death associated with cannabis exposure. But Knapp warns that, quote, associated with does not imply marijuana caused the death. The article goes on. The sensationalizing of the case study may be due in part to an interview Hoyt gave to KUSA. Quote, We extensively ruled out almost every other cause that we can think of, Hoyt said, regarding marijuana and the child's myocarditis. Quote, we found no other reason why this young kid ended up having inflammation on his heart. He added, We just want to make sure that we're not going to call this a marijuana-related fatality. If there was something else that we could point at, and we looked and looked and couldn't find it. Noah Kaufman, an emergency room physician already skeptical of the case study, says, quote, you, can't, you just can't make those statements because... It can be sensationalized. Quote, it's not based on reality, he says. Quote, it's based on somebody kind of jumping the gun. Uh, I find this interesting. Newser has at the bottom of their articles here a little, uh, an interesting, my take on this story, uh, voting selection panel uh, with a sort of multiple choice one question survey here and and my take on this story with several options from ranging from hilarious intriguing depressing brilliant scary and ridiculous um so you know i would say i'm going to call that story scary as opposed to ridiculous uh, although and it looks like then they give you some automatic results. How fun. I don't know who Newser is, but I like what they're doing here on this front. Um, I like that it's not just like or dislike or upvote or downvote. It's a little bit more descriptive in terms of what they're trying to understand in terms of your response to this article and maybe the quality of the reporting. Um, it looks like 39% of the other readers on this uh, poll and respondents to this poll uh, re reported uh, considering this ridiculous. I like it. Uh, I am not going to read any of the 79 comments on this article. But I will, of course, include this 
both this and the original article in the show notes for you so that you can check it out yourself. And uh, yeah, I think we can say for the time being we still don't need to panic here um, and that there isn't a impending wave of cannabis-related lethal events coming down the pipeline post-legalization. So, uh, But something to watch. And cannabis use on infants is, you know, almost never done for trivial reasons. I mean, I can't imagine it ever being done for trivial reasons. I would hope that that's never the case. Um, usually it's very much a medical necessity to try it at that point as part of their therapies. So, uh, okie doke. So that was our cannabis-related news for the week. How are we doing on time? 17 minutes, not bad. All right, so in a little bit of old news follow-up from last week, I want to uh, share with you an article I found at theguardian.com. You know, so uh, love them or hate them. Guardian, you know, is powerfully reporting out there and has a big reach. Um this article came out oh, 9th of November, so just a few days back. And uh, ex-Facebook president Sean Parker, the headline reads, Site was made to exploit human vulnerability. So this is just a little bit of follow-up to the uh, Pirate Bay founder, uh, you know, and his statements, uh, you know, regarding uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook in general and their data collection uh practices and pervasiveness of it, you know, basically uh, more or less, you know, making Zuckerberg and Facebook as an organization. Uh, and, you know, you could extend this to the other, you know, big five giants out there in, in um, technology and, and data acquisition. Um, you know, the, the biggest, most unelected dictators in the world. So, uh, but uh, Sean Parker here says... Or, well, let's say the article, which is uh, written by Olivia Salon, okay, um, says, Facebook's founders knew they were creating something addictive that exploited, quote, a vulnerability in human psychology from the outset, according to the company's founding president, Sean Parker. Parker, whose stake in Facebook made him a billionaire, criticized the social networking giant at an Axios event in Philadelphia this week. Now the founder and chair of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, Parker was there to speak about advances in cancer therapies. However, he took the time to provide some insight into the early thinking at Facebook at a time when social media companies face intense scrutiny from lawmakers over their power and influence. Parker described how in the early days of Facebook, people would tell him they weren't on social media because they valued their real-life interactions. Quote, And I would say, Okay. You know you will be. Quote, I don't know if I really understood the consequences of what I was saying back then. He added, pointing to, quote, unintended consequences that arise when a network grows to have more than 2 billion users. Quote, it literally changes your relationship with society with each other. It probably interferes with productivity in weird ways. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains, he said. 
He explained that when Facebook was being developed, the objective was, quote, how do we consume of much of your time, as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? It was this mindset that led to the creation of features such as the, quote, like button that would give users a little dopamine hit, end quote, to encourage them to upload more content. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Parker, for those of you not familiar with his background, he previously founded the file-sharing site Napster. Okay, and uh, my millennial listeners may literally have to Google that one, but it was big, real big, back in the day. Huge music download site. Uh... Parker joined Facebook in 2004, five months after the site had launched, as a student directory at Harvard. Parker saw the site's potential and was, according to Zuckerberg, quote, pivotal in helping Facebook transform from a project, a college project, into a real company. Uh, Let's see. Uh, This is fun. Uh, In 2005, police found cocaine in a vacation home Parker was renting, and he was arrested on suspicion of possession of a Schedule I substance. He wasn't charged, but the arrest rattled investors, and he resigned shortly after. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. I wouldn't think that would be that big of a deal back then, but eh, they were pretty young then still. Uh, Thanks mostly, and I mean, I would have thought he could just basically deny that it was his. Maybe it was left by the last people in the vacation home, but whatever. Uh, thanks mostly to his brief stint at Facebook, Parker's net worth is estimated to be more than $2.6 billion. Holy crap. He set up the Parker Foundation in June 2015 to use some of his wealth to support, quote, large-scale systemic change in life sciences, a global public health and civil, civic engagement. All right. So, yeah. Um, the Guardian goes on to ask you to support them. They're talking about, you know, falling... Advertising Revenues, Multimedia. Um, yeah, great article. Uh, you know, is Facebook stalking you? Absolutely. Uh, does, does Facebook remember everything you ever posted on it? Absolutely. Do they use it to build a rich and detailed profile on every single one of us? I don't even think I need to answer that question. Shit's rhetorical. (laughs) All right. I got one more for you. And uh, and then I'll save an update on another story till next week. But, uh, and this one admittedly is probably the wildest of of the bunch yet today. But I love it. And it's from the, and it's from the kookiest source you could possibly find. Um, I uh, found this article the other day. So, yeah, so let's take this one as the total speculation piece that it will reveal itself to be, but uh, file under food for thought, okay? And this one will lead us into next week's episode, subject matter-wise. Disclose.tv, the headline reads, was Bitcoin created by a rogue artificial intelligence to take over the world. 
On the 3rd of January 2009, the first block of 50 bitcoins was mined by the mysterious creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. The so-called Genesis block started a crypto coin industry that has a current market capitalization of $200 billion. The inception of Bitcoin is shrouded in mystery because nobody knows who actually created it. Or what created it. Bitcoin was first listed on an exchange in 2010 for a price of six cents for one Bitcoin. Today, one Bitcoin is worth over $7,000. As the price of Bitcoin went up, the processing power dedicated to mining Bitcoins and handling the blockchain, the cryptographic technology behind Bitcoin, also increased exponentially. Current estimations state that the Bitcoin network has a hash rate of around 8 million terahashes per second. That's 8 million trillion hashes per second. To put that into perspective, if you were to combine the computing power of the top 500 supercomputers in the world, the Bitcoin network aggregate around the world would have at least 200 times more computing power. They have a video embedded in the middle of the uh, story about, you know, this same subject matter. It goes on. This is where it gets interesting. In 2011, Dan Kaminsky, what up, Dan, a leading internet security researcher, investigated the currency and was sure he would find major weaknesses. After he studied the code, however, he found nine possible ways to compromise the system. Every single time he started his attack, the system would return the following message to him. Attack removed. He said that the creator of Bitcoin had to have superhuman programming skills. So they, their final paragraph is their pitch for their headline here. <clears throat> and I don't know if this is Dan Kaminsky's theory or the writer of the article. It's possible that a rogue artificial intelligence has created Bitcoin to set up a plan to control our world. This AI might have found its origins in our ever-expanding matrix of technology infrastructure, just as life did billions of years ago on Earth. It has created the world's largest supercomputer, ready to insert its code base to the platform. From there, it will undergo a hyper-evolution, creating better versions of itself in a matter of nanoseconds. In a matter of minutes, this AI would be able to control each and every aspect of human life. The real question to ask, what will it do with such power? Uh, I love it. It's science fiction. It's crazy stuff, and it's totally unsubstantiated. But I found it super entertaining, and I thought I'd share it with you guys. And I think, uh, you know, we'll keep our eyeballs on the whole cryptocurrency Bitcoin sphere. All right. Yeah, so 
I'm going to save one other story for you guys for next week and uh, go on to uh, briefly let you know about some upcoming, well, an upcoming event. Um, on December 9th and 10th here in Seattle, I uh, will be attending a podcasting convention called PodCon Seattle. Uh, I was fortunate to be selected uh, through a lottery system to attend a limited seating creator chat uh, where I'll be actually seated at a roundtable type uh, setup with a number of other podcasters, uh, attendees, that is. and uh, But we'll all have the opportunity to talk to and ask questions of, um, in the case of the one that I was uh, able to uh, participate in, uh, it's the well-known Seattle-based KUOW and NPR journalist and uh, podcaster Ashley Ahern. Uh, she hosts a podcast called Terrestrial, presently, and um, in it she talks about regions and sites around the world where people have impacted, you know, changed, uh, permanently altered the earth in such a way as to beg the question, what now? Uh I'm looking forward to attending PodCon, you know, both in order to network uh, and promote my show to fellow creators, uh, some of the most loyal listeners anywhere, in my opinion. Um, but more importantly, to learn more about the craft of podcasting, you know, as a layperson who fashions myself, you know, to be a would-be journalist, for lack of a better, more modern term, you know, and a, and a bootstrapping, self-educating journalist that uh so i'm looking forward to that and uh look for me at podcon if you're in seattle and thinking about going mike peacock of on the edge with mike peacock all right um yeah and then a special thanks special thanks to my friend dave chaffee from sunny australia uh fellow podcaster of the man brain comedy podcast uh, he has become my very first Patreon patron. Uh, humbled, amazed, stoked. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Dave, you'll be receiving a hand-drawn thank you card in the mail from me, uh, in addition to this little thank you on the air. But uh, you really have made my week. You really have, my friend. Thank you for the support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating in our Facebook groups and chats together. Um, and, you know, just believing in me as a fellow podcaster. Um, for the rest of my friends listening, please go check out Dave's excellent, viciously funny, raw, and insightful podcast today. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of supporting content creators and giving us a voice, please consider joining Dave and contributing to the show. Your contributions of any size go directly to defraying the modest but ongoing cost of web hosting, podcast RSS feed hosting, research materials, and, you know, a little bit of equipment here and there to be used directly in the creation of episodes. You can stoke me fully by donating a dollar an episode or a dollar a month. There's no commitment. You can stop any time. I'm dancing either way, and when my dance is through... I'll be right back to working hard for you. Your donations, uh, they help us stay on mission and on message, um, that being to foster a new, more positive perception of cannabis users, while also tackling and destigmatizing the discussion of alternative news, controversial conspiracy theories, etc. 
you know, commercial free, under no influence other than that of the wacky tabacky that we're talking about. Um, we chose these topics, these areas to work in, you know, not because it's so easy and fun. It's really not. Um, let's face it, you know, we, um, I should say I, for the most part, I do this because I think it's important. Because I think I might be equal to the task I've set before myself. And finally, so that later on in life I can look back and know that I at least tried to use all this incredible technological wizardry at my fingertips every day for something more than Facebook and Instagram posts, pictures, and memes. I don't know. Something like that. There'll be a link to our Patreon.com page in the show notes. You can literally just Google Patreon.com and in their search type in Baked and Awake and you'll get right to me. All right, that's about it for this week. A little bit of a trim trim one for you. Um, hope you enjoyed the stories. I enjoyed telling them to you and looking into them this week and thinking about putting it together. Next week, and follow on to this conversation, we'll be talking about real-life Terminator robots. More discussion of artificial intelligence. And because I think it's going to be really fun, the question did cannabis come from space? All right, everybody. Get out there, kick Monday in the teeth. And you know, you need to. Smoke indica. And do shit anyway. <laughs>